Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 48 of the podcast, the topic is the future of AI in government. Our guest is Lord Clement Jones, consultant of global law firm DLA Piper, former chair of the UK House of Lords Select Committee on Artificial Intelligence. In this conversation, we talk about emerging regulations for substituting AI for human labor and routine work, regulating big tech, AI for grand societal challenges, data trusts, and UK strengths in AI. Quick word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talent from thousands of experts across industries and markets. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Lord Clement Jones, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you. Very good to see you, Tron. Likewise, I'm ex- extremely happy to have you here. And today I wanted to start off uh, very quickly by um, looking at all of the interesting things that you have done uh, in, in your career and maybe highlight the, the reason I think you're, you're on today is your role in the House of Lords Select Committee on Artificial Intelligence and the fact that you're co-chairing the, the all-party parliamentary group uh, on AI in the UK. Uh, but also your international work and, and your engagement on, on data trusts internationally with the Atlantic Council. Those were the things that sort of struck a chord with me. But but clearly in your career, you have done a, a lot of different things, some of them uh, still current engagements. I noted that you have worked for a while with DLA Piper, the uh, global law firm. Um, you have a number of engagements, uh, obviously on boards, both uh, on for-profit and, and non-for-profit uh, corporations. So maybe we can get into that uh, experience a little bit. Uh, but then I, I also note that you are chair uh, person on on some university boards, so you take a strong interest still in academic pursuits. Um, and I did note um, that a, a while back you you have a degree from uh, Trinity College in, in Cambridge. So I'm assuming. Uh, that's been uh, somewhat of an influence uh, on, on you as well. But without any further ado, because there's no way I can do your background and any kind of justice, uh, you know, in, in two minutes, what, um, Lord Jones, would you say is the experience that has taught you the most and has influenced you the most out of all of these uh, interesting things that you've been up to uh, throughout your career? Well, that's quite a um, uh, a tall order. Um, I think it's probably um, uh, because all the, the all the things you've mentioned, you know, they involve a kind of not quite negotiation, but I, you know, chairing aspects of of uh, different uh, entities, as you say, boards, university councils, uh, uh, bringing people together in that sense. And I think that probably the skill. Uh, that I I owe that to the 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 training that I owe that to is really having qualified as a lawyer and then being an in-house lawyer. I think the skill of being able to work with people and interpret the law for people who uh, their first instinct isn't to 
uh, read the regulations or the rule book. You know, they basically want to get on with business. They want to do stuff. And you have to uh, 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 tell them in words that they will understand in a way that they will find sympathetic and will attune to their goals, you know, how they go about it in a positive way. So you don't, you're not the, uh, the sales prevention department, so to speak. You are helping them as, you know, to do their job, but in a constructive way. And I was in the television industry, the retail business, the, if you like, the artist materials business, the drinks business. I've been in pretty much, you know, quite a lot of different businesses over time. And the skills you need to help uh, uh, people deliver what they need to deliver, uh, if you like, in their job description, uh, are common between all those things. So, uh, you know, coming into politics, I think, uh, and working in politics at the same time as doing all that means that, you know, you don't take a kind of overly regulatory approach to things. You get, take a very constructive approach, but you look at the risk involved and you say to yourself, okay, how high is the risk? And therefore, high, high, uh, how high does the regulation need to be? So I think there are some lessons that I've learned over a period of time. And I approach that in the same way when I chair a university council and I look at some of the very difficult issues that we have on our students returning to campus. I look at the same issues to do with the ombudsman service, which I chair. And of course, I took a very similar approach when I chaired the AI Select Committee because that itself is a mix of risk and opportunity. And I think, you know, we need to make sure that we keep a balance. That's fascinating. I mean, one of the things that is so thoroughly fascinating with this uh, UK tradition of having such a multidisciplinary approach to everything from, from the get-go is that uh, a lot of uh, you, I guess, are prepared for this new era that we will talk about at length on this podcast, which brings in so many elements uh, from different sectors. And in fact, you know, when we are, are talking about AI, one of the things that really is so important to keep in mind is that it is not one perspective and, it can, and, and you know, in order to work efficiently, it has to take in so many different concerns. So I find that uh, very, very interesting. Absolutely. What, and of course, uh, that's exactly what politicians have to do. We have to kind of weigh in the balance various factors and try and bring together different opinions. Well, let's dive straight into it, shall we? Uh, and you have, by the way, assured me that I can call you uh, Tim throughout this podcast. Let me know if yep. that's still okay. Yeah. All right. So, Tim, what are the key risks and opportunities involved with AI uh, for the government uh, specifically, but but more generally for society? Yes, I think there are a lot of opportunities for government. But that is actually one of the highest risk areas, strangely enough, because I think in the private sector, people say, well, you know, OK, if it's consumer companies, I have a pretty good idea uh, in certain areas like, you know, some music selection or, you know, what am I going to like on Amazon or whatever it may be. They've got a, a reasonably decent idea. When it moves to social media, I think they've got much less of an idea in terms of how algorithms are operating. So that is a, a higher risk area. And then when it comes to government, of course, the kind of material that government uh, and data has on you, uh, 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 that, that is really quite 
uh, then you're getting to the higher risk areas. You're, you're looking at health data, for instance, where, you know, people are quite concerned if people are sharing their data unanonymized. Uh, you're looking at social security data. You're looking at all those forms of data. And therefore, if government departments are sharing that and your identity is known right across uh, government in one fell swoop, you know, one uh, press of a of a government department button, then you're getting, uh, you know, a much greater degree of worry about that. And that's why, you know, we, we need to talk about things like digital identity and so on, a secure digital identity to be sure that people aren't sharing inappropriate information across uh, departments. So uh, I'm a great believer that there is opportunity in government uh, because I think that, you know, you only have to look at transport, for instance, which is relatively uh, uh, benign information about our movements. But, you know, the fact is that Google Maps and you look at the London transport uh, situation where you can uh, see whether a bus is arriving in five minutes, you know, things of that sort uh, are, are incredibly important. But GovTech is still very much in the foothills at the moment in terms of it being used in a proper fashion. And you only have to look at, um, for instance, the Metropolitan Police use of live facial recognition technology. Uh, uh, you know, there's a great deal of doubt about the use of that at the moment. Um, and many people, including myself, would like to see a moratorium. Um, so there are, you, you know, I, I do believe there are uh, great uses for this. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, you look at the probation service, if people are going to be making decisions by algorithm, you've seen our recent uh, efforts on A-level uh, results in terms of using algorithms to try and uh, give a score and assessment for young people, which was a dismal failure. Uh, now, many people argue whether that was AI or not. Many people would say it wasn't really AI. It was just a, a useful equation. But nevertheless, that gives uh, AI a bad name in a sense. And the construction of the algorithm was not very uh, well put together, quite honestly, in terms of the weighting of the different factors. So, uh, you know, I may sound a bit like Cassandra. Um, I'm not. I'm actually quite optimistic. But you've got to get the ground rules right uh, before, because uh, it's all about public trust at the end of the day. And public trust and trustworthy AI is what I want to see, basically. So isn't it ironic, though, that the main promise, and this goes even before we had AI, right? Uh, the main promise of digital technologies really lies in the sharing of information because it is the fact that it is a system that allows you to share. That's also where you reap the benefits. How, how does one then, uh, and, and we'll talk about some of the uh, use cases for where, where it has used, you know, arguably well, uh, but but how what does one then uh, go about ensuring that this sharing happens in a fundamentally trustful and transparent manner? What is your? Let's start maybe with the the, the panel you shared. What were the main recommendations that you put into place, uh, yeah. or or suggested being put into place? And then we can maybe look a little bit at what the existing uh, governance framework looks like right now. Well, it's it's very interesting because the UK, as such, has not yet adopted an overarching framework, ethical framework, which applies to both the public and the private sector. We have obviously the Information Commissioner, and they that's what we have GDPR and so on. So we have legislation, but what we don't have is, if you like, a common ethical code which applies right across the board to AI in terms of training data. Uh, you know, throughput of data, decision making and so on. 
And what we suggested was five basic um, uh, ethical principles. Uh, and many of those have been followed, you know, uh, or paralleled by the OECD, by the Council of Europe, by the G20, uh, you know, by the American Defense Department, for heaven's sake. So, and they're not, they're not rocket science, you know, they're things like public benefit, uh, uh, transparency and explainability, fairness and explainability. Uh, uh, and actually, we added um, something which many of the others don't have, which is the right to understand, the right to be edu educated about the power of AI and the application of AI. So we wanted, a, if you like, a democratization of AI, uh, an understanding of how it can be used. Because, of course, you know, we in the West have quite a uh, a negative narrative about quite a lot that is alien, if you like. You know, if you only have to look back at Greek myths uh, with uh, robots stomping around the Isle of Crete, you only have to look at Frankenstein, you look at the Prague Golem, you know, you look at our history um, uh, and our myths and our storytelling, and it's very easy to get in a, a negative mode, and you have to overcome that. Uh, by assuring people that this is being done in an ethical fashion. And that's the absolute starting point. You know, as the risk uh, uh, raise, uh, rises, you may need to do more than just have an ethical framework. Uh, but that's the starting point. Excellent. And and is there a large different between, difference between what GDPR says is a right to an explanation and this right to an understanding that you, uh, where is the distinction between explanation and yes, understanding? Yes, because the GDPR is a funny old creature. It wasn't really designed for AI. And um, uh, people reckon that, you know, the relevant article is um, not very clear in that respect, because if you, as soon as you insert a human in the loop, you may not be entitled to an explanation. And I can't tell you how many academic papers have been written on this subject, uh, many of them by people I have a huge amount of respect for, but there isn't a great deal of clarity about that. So it, that by itself is not really enough in, in, in that sense. And of course, well, in the UK, I, you also have something to data, but it, it doesn't really go all the way through what an AI can do. I, I get that. But um, historically, for a good while now, you have in the UK these guidelines for uh, the Nolan principle of openness, I mean, which I think came out of the Committee of Standards in Public Life. Uh, but that was developed a good while ago and certainly didn't fully have AI in mind. What What is it that needs to be updated in your mind on the ethics side specifically? Well, yes, that's it. Fantastic question, Tron, because um, interestingly enough, the Committee on Standards in Public Life uh, only a few months ago published a very good report uh, uh, referring to the Nolan principles and saying that algorithmic decision making in government was not following the no Nolan principles, particularly as uh, 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 um, uh, regards uh, transparency and explainability. But uh, uh, what we need is a framework that actually has a compliance mechanism, has a very explicit set of principles. I mean, we do have a data ethics framework uh, in government, but th there's no compliance mechanism uh, that can impose sanctions. Our information commissioner's office, if you like, their jurisdiction goes 
right up to the door of government, but it doesn't include government. They have to be consulted, but they don't have, a, if you like, the, the right to say you have to have a, an impact assessment when you apply uh, this particular, use this data or you apply this AI uh, solution or whatever it may be. So that's what I would like to see. I would like to see a specific AI ethical framework that government has to adopt. And it's, you know, it's like a governance mechanism. I mean, I've seen this happen in industry. We've got some fantastic models out there uh, by industry, ethical advisory boards, uh, ethical uh, codes, uh, you know, proper compliance mechanisms, audit, impact assessment, uh, even certification, you know, whether it's design, use case, or the overarching corporate governance. I've seen some really good private sector models, and I think the government should learn from those. To what extent is the problem awareness inside of government about how important this is? And to what extent is it really just uh, this uh, situation that a lot of, of of private companies now are are doing the provision, the actual provision of the government service, right? So I, I know in one article that you wrote uh, um, a while back in the New Statesman, you you wrote about Experian, for instance, the UK company that does credit uh, uh, the Irish domicile, that uh, pardon company that collects and aggregates information on on uh, you know uh, consumers. Um, to what extent is the issue that we're dealing with a lot of private company uh, provision and to what extent is this actually government itself that is using these uh, AI and machine learning technologies w without really fully being aware of what they're, what, they're, what they're doing? I think there's an awareness in quite a number of parts of government. But, you know, I think it's the same old story. I think it's the lack of joined up thinking. Uh, that's yeah. the real problem. You know, we have a cabinet office responsible for uh, data now that they are, it's been transferred, responsibility for the national data strategy has now been transferred to our, you know, cabinet office, really the number 10 uh, centre of, of the government, um, away from the uh, uh, Department for Culture, Media and Sport, for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Um, uh, and then we've got the Office for AI, which is partly run by the business department and partly by the uh, digital culture, media and sport department. So that's one area. We've got, you know, other pockets. We've got the government digital service, which is central as well. But then we've got NHSX, which is part of the health service. Um, uh, uh, you know, I mean, there are pockets where we've got real expertise but the trouble is that, you know, uh, there's no joined up thinking in terms of uh, the overarching code that's needed, the compliance that's needed. Um, and also, of course, in terms of use by agencies, local government, the police and so on, you know, there's no real understanding of what we need to do there. And that's why things like live facial recognition technology has become so controversial. Right. I, I remember when I was working in e-government uh, in the EU and coordinating with with a, a lot of, of EU countries, you know, there was this race, uh, you know, five, uh, I guess five, ten years ago, a, a big race towards transactional services and the holy grail for 
every government was to move up the chain because initially all these e-government services weren't transactional. They were doing kind of lower level things, aggregating information, but never really actually executing an action on behalf of a government and saving, you know, obviously the money. But was it a mistake to race so much towards, and, and by the way, EID was always the bottleneck. So once various governments figured out AID, EID, of course, you know, you open up a plethora of opportunities, but also, a cha- uh, you know, challenges. Was it a mistake to race so much for the efficiency part of e-government that once you got there, you hadn't thought about the r- larger ramifications? I mean, is, that, is there an, uh, that is an inherent a, critique? That is a great point. I mean, one of the things that worried us when our select committee reported, we uh, 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 use the comparison, for instance, of uh, GM uh, uh, foods. We thought that that was a really bad example of how when you try and promote a new technology, uh, what you're not talking about is the benefits to the ordinary person, to the consumer. It's all about the benefit to the big company. You know, it's all about uh, uh, how everything can be more efficient, exactly as you say. Um, it's not about how this is actually going to benefit, it's going to level up, it's going to be good for social mobility because government's going to be able to track deprivation or whatever it may be. It's going to be uh, good for crime prevention or, you know, it, not not really talking about the benefits right up front is a very big mistake. And people tend to see these things as purely you know, for the benefit of the people putting them into practice, you know. Um, And if companies uh, put in AI for recruitment or for tracking what people are doing in their workplace, the great danger is that people will not trust it, will think that it's not for their benefit and will have a kind of modern uh, form of of, uh, Luddism, you know, which was the sort of 19th century uh, destroying of machines, you know, where people thought this was not for their benefit and they didn't want these machines to be built or used anymore. Well, do you think there is a risk of that kind of backlash? I mean, you know, uh, not to get into kind of the day-to-day politics around this, but, you know, uh, this year, for instance, has has seen uh, an uptick, certainly in protests uh, against government for, for lots of different reasons, but certainly because COVID has aggregate, aggravated uh, you know, just people generally, and and do you think there's a potential that AI specifically, uh, e- even at this stage of AI, could foment the kind of, and, and justifiably so, foment the kind of you know, uh, you know, reaction that uh, you're seeing around other aspects of society right now in the U.S. and and elsewhere? I I think there's a huge danger of that, and of course, the way that it's uh, reflected is in legal action that takes place. For instance, you know, we've seen the Home Office have to revise the algorithm that it uses um, for particular purposes. Uh, We've seen, you know, the live facial recognition controversy. Um, You know, we've we've seen quite a bit of action by interest groups, by uh, civil liberty groups and so on against uh, uh, the use of algorithms in the public sector. And, you know, if there's no transparency, there's no attempt to have a, say, for instance, citizens buy in through things like citizens juries and so on. It's no wonder because you just, we just feel as though we're the kind of victims of some, you know, big brother type operation, which it it cannot be right. Um, so we need a, we need a different approach actually. 
Tell me more about the moratorium you speak of. Is that more than this moratorium uh, on uh, temporary moratorium, which uh, even private industry actually have uh, did impose? Uh, I think Amazon actually uh, and, 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 and IBM as yeah. well on some yeah. facial recognition software temporarily for usage in in police force uh, enforcement, because predictive policing sounds like a fantastic idea, right? Under you know pressure uh, on budgets and everything, uh, but predictive. Uh, policing with faulty algorithms that are pointing out, you know, certain ethnicities as more likely to commit crimes, even though that's just, uh, you know, evidently based on a, a too small data set to to be have any kind of uh, justification. That, that's problematic. But are there other aspects where you would say you were talking about a moratorium earlier? Is that more of a general moratorium on any kind of algorithmic tracking and decision making, or is it? Are you more worried in health and in sharing services than you are in, let's say, just data gathering and information yeah. presentation to governments? Yeah, it depends for the that thing. You've always got to look at the purpose uh, for which it's yeah. intended, and then you've got to look at the risk by sector, by the data use, and so on. And obviously, most of us are great fans of using data uh, as far as possible, which is anonymized, et cetera, uh, for health purposes. But of course, we've had the controversy over our um, uh, COVID app, you know, where it was a... Right. I mean, that goes around the world, this, yeah. this controversy. And, you know, we weren't going to put up with uh, having a centralized app. And many people made the point that it wasn't going to be effective anyway. And as it happened, uh, Google and uh, Apple's Bluetooth uh, uh, function was not compatible with the first app that our government uh, NHSX uh, side uh, developed. Uh, but now... It's a decentralized app. It's very light on taking your data. Uh, it is actually, I mean, it may not work fully effectively because our test and trace system isn't uh, adequate yet. But nevertheless, the concept is far more uh, user-friendly in terms of data use. So, you know, it's, I'm not blanket condemning use of, uh, of algorithms and, and, and AI in the public sector. Where it comes to things like live facial recognition and actually deep fake, uh, uh, technology as well is pretty worrying uh, in that respect. I mean, I want us to take a deep breath and say, right, what kind of regulatory framework do we need around this technology before we can use it? Now, um, it, the reason for calling for a moratorium rather than just saying, right, here we've got a bit of uh, legislation that we need to put into effect is there's quite a big public debate to be had. Some people would say, actually, it's wrong for the police to use live facial recognition technology, full stop. Others, and I'm probably in this camp, would say, no, as long as it's for the right purpose, as long as the watch list that you're using to compare faces against is absolutely put together in an ethical fashion and you're not using companies like Clearview and so on and so forth to build your database with uh, because the images have been you know imported um, uh, effectively illegally you 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 know it that's then legitimate but that needs an awful lot of debate and discussion and we're not there yet and therefore this idea that you know just because the police have some sort of code of practice i mean i've spoken to 
police forces, and they would like to see a regulatory framework themselves. They would like to see government start that work. So actually, I think an awful lot of people are on the same page here. It's just that government is very slow in recognizing their public concern about these things. And that's that's the problem. You know, we have people like the Center for Data Ethics and Innovation, which is warning about these things. Uh, you know, the ICO has warned about these things. But um, it, it seems that government doesn't listen to its own agencies. One of the potential solutions for one part of the, this problem is uh, something that you have advocated uh, called data trusts. And I know there was a white paper where, which you've been engaged in. I don't know if you were part of writing it, but you have been talking about it uh, in the context of an Atlantic Council, the, the, uh, you know, the U.S. think tank. Tell me, and for the benefits of, of my listeners as well, what is a data trust? Because it's not really kind of familiar t- terminology. Even the word trust, I think, you know, is maybe more familiar in the UK than it is in the US. But in any case, what is a data trust and what does it solve? Yes, I mean, it's an entity. Uh, You may be right, because actually, funnily enough, um, uh, uh, it is not a trust. Uh, You know, legally, uh, uh, you know, it is not a trust. It's it's an entity. It's an organisation that basically looks after, curates your personal data, uh, uh, for the public benefit. So it's a way of building trust in public use of your data. And so, and it's a buffer organization, is it, uh, uh, Tim? It's actually something that goes in between me and whoever is trying to use my data. Yes, absolutely. And it's basically got a code of governance. You know that when you put your data into an organization like that, that it's going to be used in for particular purposes, in a particular way. And if they want to use it for other purposes, they'll have to ask your consent. And so it's a way of interfacing with the NHS or with uh, other uh, government departments or agencies. So it's actually quite a powerful thing to have. And you could use it also for use by the private sector as well. But it, it is a governance, it is a form of governance, which is rather important. Now, there are many other models. Data Trust, which has been put forward by the Open Data Institute, I'm a, I'm a big fan of. But there are things like hubs of all things where your own personal data you know, you actually have the control over. For instance, you know, we have data portability under GDPR. You can sort of download that into a hub of all things and they will curate it for you. I don't think we've yet got to the point where there's a settled way uh, of making sure that we've got our data, uh, if you like, both secure and usable in a safe way. Um, but I think but getting... are there actually operational data trusts that you, that you trust, no, or are they more of a theoretical construct? There have been pilots, pilots, and yeah. the trouble is at the moment, as far as I can see, and I've had you know sessions, uh, uh, conversations, fireside chats with Dame Wendy Hall and uh, other people on the subject, because she uh, really put forward. Uh, the data trust as an idea in the whole Percenti review back in 2017. Uh, so you could, if you like, you could say that she's one of the progenitors of this. And I think we're all a bit frustrated by the lack of progress because there is an issue. We need uh, to determine at this stage what the best legal structure for a data trust is. You know, I don't think it should take long, but I think we need funding for people like the Open Data Institute um, to come forward with, if you like, the finished product. 
Um, but again, government doesn't isn't pushing hard enough on that. And I do think that is a very important aspect. I'd like to shift now a little bit to talk more about the positive aspects, because I feel like any discussion that just talks about regulation uh, often ends up on the negative side, even though regulation, but also government's role in supporting innovation is always extremely important. So, and this has uh, certainly been the case in the history of the UK and also of the US and many other governments. What would you say... And I know you've you've written about this and care about this as, as well. What are the UK strengths specifically when it comes to AI? Um, is it related to some of the things we have talked about, i.e. The, the kind of the diplomacy aspect, the classical kind of UK strengths, uh, and some of the ethics where you obviously are critical, but perhaps even just the fact that we're having this discussion is something that's not even going on in every, in and around every government? Or, or is it other places in terms of the UK's kind of scientific excellence where, where it's actually more on the technology side of AI that you are optimistic? Or is it maybe on trade or, or you know, other UK strengths or connected to privacy or, or other things? Where is the UK strength in AI? And what do you think the, the government and, and private initiatives should pursue in terms of kind of UK AI initiatives? I think we're so nearly, I mean, we're, you know, we've got so many good elements. You, let's start at the very beginning, which is, if you like, universities. I think we've got some very, very strong universities, not just in, the, if you like, the Golden Triangle, but uh, of London, Cambridge, Oxford. We've got Manchester, Edinburgh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, Harriet Watt. Uh, you know, uh, you, I mean, I went, to, I went to have a look at what Edinburgh's doing. Um, with their Bayesian uh, Institute. And, you know, some of that is is absolutely extraordinary. And then you take yourself um, to where the startup uh, culture is. And our startup culture is second to none uh, in uh, uh, in Europe uh, as a whole. Obviously, you know, the Americans have got a very, very strong startup culture and serve so the Chinese. But actually, for a European country, we're doing pretty well still in London. Where I think we've identified that it's not quite as strong, but it is getting stronger, is that growth side of it, where, you know, we need to scale up. Quite often, trade sales are made to other companies. They're snapped up by bigger companies at that phase. And that is, a, that is a, you know, uh, 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 that's unfortunate. Uh, uh, basically, DeepMind, for instance, is a very good example of how uh, that was snapped up along the way. But then you look at not just at, you know, and we've had quite a few unicorns. We've had, you know, double the number of unicorns of Paris and Berlin uh, put together uh, uh, over a period of time. So I am optimistic about that aspect. And government is quite mindful. They put in, they've got a future fund that they put in uh, place. Um, you know, it's not big bucks compared to China or America, but, you know, we're developing, there is a company that's developing what you might call probabilistic AI, which isn't, you know, conventional machine learning. It's much more about using data and making predictions uh, off a smaller uh, database, which is actually quite hopeful because one of the things that worries me is the amount of data that's held by the fangs and not uh, if you like, available to the startups. But then you look at the ethical side and you're quite right to say, well, you know, okay, what are these guys doing? They trumpet the fact in some of their early industrial policy and the sector deal that they're very big on ethical AI. Well, you know, at the institutions that have been set up have been 
uh, pretty good. I mean, the uh, the Alan Turing Institute is doing some extremely valuable work on uh, on this. Uh, you know, particularly on some of the tools that are needed for assessing compliance with ethical principles. We've got the CDEI, the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, and you notice the ethics and innovation as being both part of the title, which I think is important. Um, you look at what they've been doing, and they produced a really uh, a great barometer paper recently talking about the different risks and the ethical um, aspects uh, in the different sectors that need to be applied. And then, I mean, quite recently, um, we've applied, you know, we, we, we've helped to found the uh, uh, the global partnership on AI, you know, Canada, France, and many others are now involved in that. And so I think we do believe that we can play a leadership role. Now, not all is rosy in the garden. I've recently um, had to give a bit of a kick um, to the government on uh, its involvement with the Council of Europe's uh, uh, CAHAI uh, uh, committee, which is looking at regulation across the board and what might be appropriate in the AI field. Well, you know, that's an area uh, on the scale of the Council of Europe, which is really valuable. 48 European countries looking at this kind of thing. Well, you know, that is uh, uh, something which we really should be wholeheartedly engaging in. So I'm not saying that, you know, there aren't, um, uh, there are areas that don't need kicking. I mean, I've got a session, a follow-up session to our select committee coming up in October. And I can tell you, I've got quite a few questions and I will be kicking the tyres on our government policy, you know, quite heavily, because I want to know that they are moving ahead as fast as uh, they should be. And of course, in some areas, I think particularly in the education area, where, you know, I chair a, an institute for ethical AI in education, I don't feel the government's doing nearly enough um, to uh, understand the implications and the application of AI in the education field and the skills that are needed um, to work with AI in the future. You know, they're not doing enough in terms of reskilling. Uh, you know, I want to see, if you like, a lifelong learning account so that individuals know they're not on the scrap heap. If uh, technology comes along in their business, you know, they're not going to be replaced. They're going to learn how to work with AI. Now, all this is absolutely vital for public trust. Would you say that this focus on big tech lately as a as a problem in, in various ways, is that an inherent problem in the current kind of state of technology that the winner, big winner takes all just because once you have amassed a lot of resources uh, and data uh, and start sharing it, then inherently you you control an asset that you know mirrors a little bit arguably, you know, the old uh, infrastructure play that governments always used to have. You know, you own the electricity, you know, uh, but but then there was deregulation even in government. Now, where are we with that uh, in your thinking? You know, are we uh, now ushered into an era where this big tech needs to be broken up for this precise reason, you know, the old kind of monopoly thinking, or are we in a different challenge where it's not really that these uh, fang companies, as you call them, you know, inherently are a bad idea. It's just that you need to have a, a better regulatory environment around them so that whatever they're doing, they're doing it within certain boundaries. Because certainly you're not arguing that government itself should become a fang. In other words, you know, should take on the competencies of a Facebook and an Amazon and, 
you know, and a, and a Microsoft and, and an IBM all together and, you know, own the robots and own all the IoT infrastructure um, and have the best data because there obviously is that, there is that option. Uh, it would be an enormously costly affair, uh, but it's not clear that that would be a good thing. So, so is the alternative for you more a light touch or, or wh wh where do you see this moving? You know, one in your ideal picture, and then let's say you don't win through. Where where is this wagon going at the moment? Yeah, no, a very fair question. Well, um, not so light touch. I think. I mean, I'm. Uh, uh, I think one of the great lessons, you know, from the 19th century and the early 20th century in the states is good antitrust can make a big difference. And of course, you know, that was what all the standard oil, that's why people called data the new oil, because they look back to the, um, the that period. Um, and of course, what they're trying to think of is, well, data, once you've monopolized it, is extremely valuable. Well, this is what worries me. And I mentioned it earlier that the fangs have access uniquely to huge quantities of data. And, you know, the big issue for me and Jason Furman, Professor Jason Furman, did a very useful report uh, 18 months ago. Um, uh, he recommended a digital markets unit within our competition and markets authority. And where, you know, the government had sort of, you know, started that process. I don't think they're being vigorous enough yet, but uh, I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating as to whether or not the CMA adopts a much more rigorous approach to data monopoly, because I don't think they've really grasped it yet. And that was what Jason Furman, who used to advise President Obama, uh, 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 advised us to do quite rightly, because he looked at those kind of historical precedents too. So I think we know what needs to be done in terms of putting in that regulatory framework you talked about, uh, which I think would be, you know, absolutely the right thing to do. Um, and you can therefore uh, give room to breathe and access to data to a much greater extent um, uh, uh, to these startup companies and the growth companies. I mean, you know, the, the, one of the issues for me is, do you just allow takeovers to go ahead or do you say, no, strategically, what we've got to do is allow these companies to grow bigger um, and and help determine their own destiny? So do they need access to finance and so on? So although you're quite right, governments shouldn't own things, they can certainly enable things and um, sure. helping a healthy capital. Uh, capital market, maybe it'll never be as strong as Silicon Valley, but having a healthy capital market, and we've got some pretty good venture capitalists and private equity houses here, uh, you know, it, it, we just need to give that more of a boost. Hmm. Looking at the next decade, or, you know, the decade we're in right now, and we 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 entered pretty quickly into this decade, uh, you know, with a bang, I would say, what do you think is likely to happen considering COVID and other things? What are you seeing as a result of even just the last six months in terms of um, the challenges that this decade will bring us and, and the likely kind of solutions on, on, the, on the technology, on the deep technology end. Do you think that this decade is uh, particularly important in this regard? Or would you say, you know, yes, these things are important, but, but you know, we, we will be able to, to kind of fully understand and, and we have the time and, and we will take the time uh, you know, through moratoriums and other things. W what do you think will happen in this decade in terms well, of deep tech? 
Yeah, I, 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 you know, it's so interesting. But the many people reckon that you know, COVID has accelerated our digital behaviour uh, by five years. You know, there are many people who say, look, in universities, we never would have got to this blended learning. We never. Uh, 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 would have acceptance by lecturers of, of doing uh, things in this way. Uh, it would have taken us five years without COVID. You look at other businesses, my uh, the law firm that I work with, I, you know, how would, how would you imagine that, you know, during the course of two weeks in March, we'd managed to make everybody virtual, basically, uh, and deliver right. a service consistently? You know, uh, it's things like that. So I think the acceleration has been extraordinary. But th so that's the opportunity. But the big problem is because it's been accelerated and the, the public is lagging behind in understanding in many ways about how these things work. And hence things like the A-level uh, uh, angst and people not really, uh, I mean, A, the, it was a fiasco anyway, but then the public don't uh, are going to tar uh, all sorts of things with that brush. And then again, of course, you know, we have the old John McCarthy adage that um, uh, when it works, no one calls it AI anymore. So actually, underneath it in your smartphone, um, you know, we've all got bits of AI. So again, there's a lack of understanding. But as soon as people do start understanding more, the danger is that they are going to be afraid, that they're going to lack trust in the in these solutions. So it's incumbent on those who are technologists and who are leading companies and who are uh, government ministers to really understand how they uh, gain public acceptance uh, uh, and trust for these new technologies. And that's, you know, so we've got two conflicting things, this acceleration, which means that we've got the opportunity um, to, uh, uh, to really upgrade our technology and introduce quite a lot more AI, opportunities for new businesses and so on. But on the other hand, you know, <clears throat> if we don't uh, do it in the right way, we're going to find we lose public trust. And that, I suppose, I keep coming back to the public trust issue, but you can see where I'm coming from. Yes. And I, and I find that you're, you know, it's a double-edged sword, obviously, right? Trust you can only gain trust if you have some amount of understanding and you're you seem to be understanding the public as well though saying there's no reason at this moment to have complete trust right because you don't have any assurances that that trust is justified so you have to cre create conditions for justifiable trust so there's a you know we basically need a covid moment in trust as well you can't just you know covid was just an impetus that made a us all have to do something, but now you, you need to explain how and why and how the gains, if the, if you want to call it that, could be sustainable and yes. sustained. They'll take it, things on trust to begin with. I mean, at the very beginning of our lockdown, people were very trusting and said, okay, I, I believe those two scientists standing up you know, uh, in Downing Street, and uh, we'll do we'll do what you say. But now, because you know they're not quite so sure about the uh, messages, the uh, uh, the communication isn't as good. They're not so sure about the science either. Um, <clears throat> all those things, and you get begin to get um, a lack of trust, and and people then stop conforming to you know these things so i think it's a very good parallel you're making trond between kind of covid type behavior and ai in the future and it's public psychology i mean you know 
uh, you need to treat people like adults, basically. Um, Hmm. And if you start treating them like adults and you give them the opportunity um, to question uh, and, you know, debate, um, you know, and I'd mentioned citizen juries earlier, doesn't all have to be in Parliament, for heaven's sake. I think out there is really important. You give local authorities, you know, um, uh, much greater uh, uh, devolved power uh, than, you know, than they have at the moment. You know, you basically... Uh, uh, don't say I am the only person who's going to decide on all this. Uh, you, you, you have to have the right to question and so on, and then you get a healthy public debate. And I think you know things like what is the right form of regulation uh, for AI and so on is not dissimilar to that. And that's where we ought to start the debate, quite honestly. And how complicated do you think it is to to reach the the consensus on on this on where we're going because up until now right you talked about the need for trust and you've talked about ethical principles that we can maybe more or less all agree on but we all know that when it comes down to it in these debates that you speak of right it's not just about informing yourself and informing others it's real trade-off to uh, trade-offs to be had so you know, I usually ask my uh, uh, my interviewees, you know, how do you stay up to date and how do you track the the field that you have so cleverly kind of ex- uh, espoused here? How, how, how do you actually keep your understanding sharp? But it strikes me that in addition to that question, what really comes to mind here, it's, it's not just about informing yourself. It's literally where are the venues? So you, when you say citizen juries, where should people go? Um, to engage in this because surely this is much more than just taking part in elections and calling up their local mps like there are things here that need to be organized in order for this kind of deal to be reached oh where are these debates going to happen oh i I, I, it's fantastic the diversity of places i mean you know we have uh, cogex which makes it its business to debate uh, uh, the issues surrounding new technology in both a positive and a regulatory way. We have the Ada Lovelace uh, Institute, which the Nuffield Foundation set up, which have explored a lot of these things. Tech UK, which is the trade body for the tech industry. I mean, they have, you know, they've now almost instituted a kind of um, tech ethics uh, conference. And the last one, last um, autumn, I mean, was fantastic. Uh, So, you know, I'm hoping they're going to do something similar. But they engage very heavily in in discussion. So, and then, of course, at international level, uh, the Council of Europe, the CAHI Working Group, you've got the OECD, which has got a parliamentary group on AI, which I helped to found. Um, You've got, you know, well, we've got the Atlantic Council, of course, that uh, debates these things. It's difficult sometimes always to match the debate on the Atlantic Council because the rules applying to data are so different between North America and here. But nevertheless, it's useful to have that sort of level of debate and discussion. Um, uh, and, you know, and and then, you know, we see things like the partnership on AI having these debates. Uh, we have the institutions like the Institute for uh, uh, chartered accountants in um, uh, England and Wales. I mean, they have a tech uh, 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 um, faculty. They have a um, uh, 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 an investment um, faculty. 
um, uh, and and uh, a corporate finance faculty, and both of them have done a lot of work on governance in the AI area. So mm. actually, you'll find all over there is this debate uh, going on. Uh, you'll find it in the investment houses like Fidelity and Hermes, who uh, you know are putting together and have put together um, ethical codes that they expect the companies that they invest in to abide by. So there is, you know, a flowering of debate and discussion. You know, law firms uh, are doing quite a lot. My own firm um, is doing a lot, putting together, you know, a score box in this area. And I think a number of others are doing not dissimilar things. The accountants uh, 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 themselves, the big four, have all got pretty big uh, uh, outfits devoted to uh, advising in this area, both in mm. terms of development and ethics and so on. So actually, there is quite a flourishing uh, going on mm. out there. And and lastly, then, uh, uh, Tim, do you feel that the global governance challenge of, of, of this can be readily handled by the existing institutions? Or, or is there, in some of these kind of uh, over-national uh, debates, a need for some other organized form of governance beyond kind of traditional standardization, uh, you know, to to handle the question of AI. Is it such a so, so? Will it become such a big issue that the traditional, you know, I mean, Council of Europe, forty-eight nations, but that's not the world, right? You have the United Nations, uh, you have UNICEF, and other things, you know, for education for other purposes. But are these organizations equipped to handle? even just the next, de next decade's discussions on AI? I think we've got to see where it goes because we've got rather a lot of those international institutions. There's a lot of them. Yeah, sure. we've got the GPAI, which is a, a smaller body than the OECD. The OECD is bigger than the Council of Europe. We've got the G20, which is powerful but relatively small. So I think if we could bring it all together, I mean, for instance, the G20 was instrumental in getting agreement on a code of practice for sovereign wealth funds, for instance. You know, um, we've got the OECD, which has been doing huge amounts of work on tax, uh, digital taxation for, you know, the uh, uh, the digital economy, uh, which has been extremely useful. Uh, the Council of Europe, in a sense, is the grandfather um, of, well, the, the progenitor for the European Human Rights Convention. So they've all got pedigrees um, that can make things uh, uh, really work. Uh, and what I, about an actor like the World Economic Forum, which arguably well, is global? The World Economic Forum has done some fantastic work. I mean, their procurement guidelines that we've now adopted in the UK um, uh, are, are put together extremely well. They've done a lot of work to... Um, uh, 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 on corporate governance. You know, they've got some great people um, uh, 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 on uh, who, who've put together, you know, some guidelines on, on corporate governance. So, you know, um, wherever you look, and actually that's one of the reasons why I set up an all-party parliamentary group in Parliament so that we could get our hands round what was happening out there. You know, uh, well, the, you seem to you seem to have succeeded in that. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a plethora of information sources and and strands of evidence that you you have brought out. Uh, you know, for my listeners, so that for, for that I, I, I thank you. Uh, it's uh, it's a lot. 
<laughs> this I, is uh and keeping up with it all you have to have to be quite alert because you know not a day goes by without something relevant happening you know it might be gpt3 you know natural language processing writing articles which seem to be half decent you know but autonomously uh right. you know or another development happening you know um, in another part of the forest, and you just, and, or somebody produces a new set of uh, new audit uh, mechanism. I mean, it's uh, it's a fascinating area, but you we have to keep on top of it. And as I always say, uh, AI has to be our servant, not our master. And unless we do stay on top of it, that won't be the case. Well, on that note, uh, uh, Lord uh, Clement Jones, I, I want to thank you so much for what you've contributed today. And it seems like you indeed do stay on top of it. I hope there's uh, many more parliamentarians and uh, uh, people in public office like yourself. But also, I think what you have echoed here is the need for all of us to try to stay on top of this and uh, create that trust that's needed. So thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Trond. You have just listened to episode 48 of the Futurized podcast with host Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of AI in government. Our guest was Lord Clement Jones, consultant of global law firm DLA Piper, former chair of the UK House of Lords Select Committee on Artificial Intelligence. In this conversation, we talked about emerging regulations for substituting AI for human labor and routine work, regulating big tech, AI for grand societal challenges, data trusts, and UK strengths in AI. My takeaway is that there are crucial risks and opportunities involved with AI that do need to be resolved in this decade by governments, even though the pace of adoption might not be as steep as some industry visionaries predict. The existing governance frameworks around the world are not enough. The government simply needs a new approach to algorithmic decision-making. Data trusts is one piece of the puzzle, not the only approach, but perhaps an important one. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.